Good morning, my friends. So glad to see each of you out this morning. Do welcome you. Let's start with a time of prayer together. Thank you, Lord, that we can approach you with confidence because of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that you redeemed us from our our sins, from your, your wrath, by your own precious blood. Thank you that you became a a curse for us, for it's written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. Lord, thank you that although you were despised, you were rejected, you were wounded, you did that not because of your sin, but because of ours. You're the sin bearer, you're the substitute, you're our redeemer, our savior, and and through the cross you have become our, our friend. Lord, I pray that today that you would work in our hearts and deal with anything that keeps us from a a close relationship with you, a close fellowship with you. And Lord, I pray that the word of God would would both uh, pierce our hearts and also heal our hearts as well. Lord, we pray for your spirit to help me and I I give the word of God and I pray for each of you us as we listen, Lord, that we would receive your word, not as man's opinion, for that for that changes and often unsettles us, but we would receive your word for, for how it is, the, the very word of God, which does its work effectively in those who believe. Lord, I pray today for our, our sister churches around Columbus who are preaching Christ and him crucified, I pray that they would be clear and bold in doing so and not be embarrassed of the simple message of the crucified and risen Savior. And Lord, I pray for those churches that are ashamed of the gospel and and maybe lacking confidence in the word of God. I pray that they would gain a new confidence in Christ and they would look to him alone. Lord, I pray for our kids in children's church and nursery today. I pray that you would open up their hearts to receive the wonderful news of Jesus and they would see that he is the only one truly worth living for. Father, we uh, do pray for Pastor Eric today and Cindy as they're away on vacation. I pray that you would strengthen them and help them, give them uh, much peace and grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, I am um, I'm used to having puppets on my hands and um, talking downstairs, so please bear with me if I start talking to my hands and having a conversation. <laughs> Does anyone need a handout? Did you get one of those sheets coming in? Or raise your hand if you need a, a handout still. Okay, looks pretty good. Our study this morning is from Ephesians 6, and the title is, The Gospel Goes to Work. Certainly the gospel works on all of us and changes us gradually to be more like Christ, but that's not what I mean. I mean the gospel goes with us to whatever job or calling that we have in our lives. By the way, what was your first job? What was your first job? Mine was was Burger King. 
You can't imagine that. Age 14. I still like Burger King, by the way. I don't eat there very often. I like it. What's your job now? How do you feel about your job right now? How has COVID changed your job? Has it made it harder? Has it made it easier? Why do you go to work? Why do you go to school? What's your, what's your motivation? What's your purpose for doing that? Um, I wanted to ask the students some questions. Uh, students, are you the kind to like prepare way ahead? Or do you procrastinate? Do you think that you might have a little laziness in your bones? Or are you like, I got to get all A's and I can't accept a B? Or are you somewhere in between? Retirees. What's your purpose now in your life? What are the tasks that God has given you? Are you mentoring the next generation? Or how do you approach retirement? Moms. What motivates you as you have so many jobs taking care of the home and cleaning and doing meals and and caring for kids? Um, What's your motivation? Are our motivations, I wonder, different from maybe a lost person's motivations? Are they distinctly Christian or are they all about the same? Does being a follower of Jesus make a difference in my attitude and my manner and how I work? Does it make a difference? Is it supposed to be a, make a difference? Well, Ephesians 6 tells us that Jesus cares about what's going on in our hearts as we go to work, and he cares about our motivations even while we're vacuuming. He cares about what's happening in our lives between 9 and 5, and not just what happens on Sunday. Through the gospel, we serve Jesus Christ by faith in our everyday tasks, And we do so with an eternal purpose. Uh, Look what Martin Luther says. I think you have this on your sheet. Luther's perspective on work, fighting against an old idea that really separated the sacred too much from the secular. The maid who sweeps her kitchen is doing the will of God just as much as the monk who prays. Not because she may sing a Christian hymn as she sweeps, but because God loves clean floors. The Christian shoemaker does his duty not by putting little crosses on the shoes, but by making good shoes, because God is interested in good craftsmanship. And this is a blessing of Christianity. You know, as you first come to Christ and try to understand, okay, what is is Christianity? It's not a religion. It's not ceremony. Yeah, it's a, whole, it's a whole way of life where I'm walking with Jesus. And this is the beauty of the gospel, that, that we walk with him for his glory in the simple and the mundane tasks and callings of life. No longer through the gospel is there Jesus life and then my real life. You remember those days, right? I remember one time going to a a good tax preparer who was going to save me lots of 
of money on my taxes, and I found out why, because um, he didn't have a problem with cheating. And he says, oh, 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 don't worry, Dave. I talk to Christians all the time, and at the end we have Jesus time to make them feel good about cheating on their taxes. Why? Well, that was very troubling to me, um, this idea there's a, a Jesus life, and then there's my, there's my, my real life. See, that's what our text is taking on today. It's getting us out of that, that mindset. I don't know about you, though. I find it very difficult to maintain the right attitude and eternal perspective when I'm doing certain jobs, when we work with certain co-workers, when we are maybe writing this particular paper or sweeping this floor again or changing this diaper or understanding this boss. Those times really call us to ask ourselves, what am I doing? Who am I really working for? Who am I really working for? Oh, I'm just an IT worker, Pastor Dave. Oh, I'm just a fourth grader. Oh, I'm just a housewife. I'm just retired. I'm just a teacher or a student. I'm just an office worker. I'm just a number cruncher. I'm just a cleaner. I'm just one of many healthcare workers. Think about what's implied in those kind of statements. Well, pastors, they have a divine call, but but not me. My my work isn't that important. I, I wish I could serve Jesus more than one day a week. Well, that is the old pre-Reformation view of work, a wrong view of work. The false notion that only pastoral calls are divine callings. For Romans 11 says this, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And that tells us this. Your work is from Jesus. Your work is through Jesus. Your work is unto Jesus. And yes, your work is to the glory of Jesus. That was the Reformation, rediscovery of the biblical view of work. Well, since all of our lives are to display the love and grace of Jesus, and since we probably spend more time working than any other activity, I feel like it's very important for us to regularly deal with this from the scriptures. And so our study today is the gospel goes to work. The gospel goes to work. Let's consider this this morning. Our first point that we see from the text, and this is in verse 5, the very beginning, is that we display Jesus in our work by having a submissive behavior. We display Jesus in our work by having a submissive behavior. Notice the text starts by saying, Bond servants, obey your earthly masters. Or your translation might actually read, slaves. Obey your earthly masters. Why would Paul address it that way? Why would he use the word bondservants and slaves and masters and not employee and employer? Well, you 
most likely know this. This is written in the time of Roman slavery. Roman slavery. Let me talk about Roman slavery a little bit so we can understand the context in which this is written. Roman slavery was viewed as the social and economic fabric of Rome. It was viewed by them as a practical necessity for their life. In Greece and in Rome, a third to half of the population were slaves, as Paul wrote this. People became slaves in the Roman system many different ways. You could be born into it. Uh, your parents could, could sell you into slavery or abandon you into that. Uh, captivity of war was a big way that slaves were brought into Rome. If you were unable to pay your debts, that would be a pathway into slavery. Uh, some would voluntarily try to better their situation in life, and they would volunteer to become bond servants or slaves. Now, the word slave has quite a connotation, but in this context and culture, race or ethnicity was actually not a factor in Roman slavery. So it was different from the antebellum slavery that we're used to hearing so much about. Uh, because of the different ways that people became slaves, you could be a, uh, a professional, like an um, uh, artist or a copyist of manuscripts, or even a medical professional as a slave. But most slaves would be uh, working with, with farming or, or mining or just regular cleaning and, and things like that. Now let me deal with the great negatives of this. A Roman writer divided the agricultural instruments into three classes. The articulate farming instruments were known as slaves. The inarticulate farming instruments were known as animals. And the mute agricultural instruments were known as tools and vehicles. So here, a slave's only distinction above animals and tools was that he could speak. Uh, Cato, an ancient Roman writer, says that old slaves should be thrown on a dump, and when a slave is ill, do not feed him anything. It's not worth your money. Take, take six slaves and throw them away because they are nothing but inefficient tools. Augustus, it's reported, crucified a slave because he accidentally killed his pet quail. Pollio threw a slave into a pond of deadly lamprey eels for breaking a crystal goblet. A slave could be whipped, he could be branded, he could be killed. And the, the, the struggle was the terror of the slave was that he was absolutely at the whim of his master. Now this institution was eventually changed and then it was ended by Christianity, but it certainly wasn't by a direct attack of slavery by Christianity. And this brings us to our second point, Christianity and slavery. Christianity and slavery. So picture now Christianity coming into the Roman Empire, slowly but gradually dominating the Christian Empire, but here you had all these con uh, con uh, congregations filled up with the regular people of the day. What would that look like? It wasn't just an ethnic bringing together in Christ. 
It was slaves and masters in the same congregation, oftentimes. So although Paul here is not directly dealing with the morality of this terrible institution of slavery itself, but I want you to notice the way that he speaks of slaves, it raises this question. And it it gradually, from the inside out, changes how people view this. But a natural question to ask is, hey, what is Paul doing? He had the chance right here. Why didn't he just denounce slavery outright as he addresses this? Well, let me give you a few reasons, and this will help us to understand how the gospel and how Christianity deals with things. Number one, I want us to see that although Paul didn't outright condemn slavery here, how he talks about it, he certainly doesn't condone it. Now, this is in the context in Ephesians of living a life that's controlled by the Spirit of God. This argument starts way back in Ephesians 5.18, that we're not to be controlled by alcohol, the text says, but rather we're to be filled or we're to be dominated and controlled by God's Spirit. And then it goes into body, body life, it goes into a life in the family and marriage, and the basement, the, the 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 treatment and attitude of marriage is the basis of the gospel, Christ in the church, and the motivating factor for dealing with each other and marriage and family was the fact that it was a picture of Christ and the church. Then he moves on to children, obey your parents. Well, why is that? Well, first of all, it's based on natural law. It's the right thing to do. And whether a person's a Christian or unbeliever, people have a general understanding that kids are to obey their their parents. But for the Christian kid, it's more than just natural law. It's also supernatural law. For this is right, and it comes with a command and a promise. Way back to the Old Testament. So it's, it's based in... All of this natural law, the gospel, supernatural law. But we come to slavery, you have nothing of that language. You have a very different picture. He's acknowledging its existence, but not talking in that same way. Now, if we want to look at the Old Testament law, it does forbid slavery because it clearly speaks against the kidnapping of anyone for the purpose of making him or her a slave. That's Exodus 21.6. So that tells me that the European and American slave trade that lasted past the middle of the 19th century was clearly a violation of scripture, regardless of some of the rationalizations of many Christians who themselves were involved in the antebellum slave trade. What's the second reason, though? What's the second reason to help us understand why Paul doesn't directly attack the Roman institution of slavery? This is very important, very important to understand. You understand that Christianity is a supernatural thing. It is God miraculously dealing with our hearts. Paul's instruction here focuses primarily on supernatural gospel heart change. It gets down to the the real root of the problem. 
which is not just acts of sin, but it's our desire for sin, and oftentimes our desire to abuse people for our own pleasure and our own fulfilling of lusts. See, if Paul just dealt with institutions, he would be dealing merely with the fruit of sin. And the gospel deals with the heart root problem. See, this is the major difference than how the modern person approaches things. And this is the beauty of the gospel and God's word and how God's word is timeless. It's relevant and its authority is for all times. Uh Think through me a little. Think through with uh, with me about this. Think about if Scripture just dealt with social structure institutions one at a time, and particularly uh, in the in the day that the Scriptures were written, didn't focus so much on radical heart transformation through the, the grace of God, but it dealt with institutions. What would happen? Okay, good. One institution would be destroyed. But then, as often is the case, abusers would just change their game, would change their strategy, and just find another way to mistreat other people. So, I can put it this way. If we expect Paul to answer all the ethical issues of ancient Roman slavery and other institutional abuses, we're going to misunderstand what the New Testament really has to say. See, the beauty of the gospel is that it doesn't focus on restructuring human systems, which, by the way, are never the cause of human problems. The issue is always the heart of man and woman. If sinful hearts are not changed in Christ, they will always find ways to oppress others, whether there is real slavery or not slavery. See, but the scripture says that spirit-filled believers will learn through the gospel to have just and harmonious relationships with with each other, no matter what system they live under. Or we could say it this way. Our problem is not basically political, social, economic, but it's spiritual. And that is what Paul concentrates on. He goes to the real root of the matter. By the way, this is encouraging for us as believers today. Because regardless of what system of government we have in the future, and you may really, really not like it, and I may not either, we can still live the gospel out. And we have the example of thousands of years of believers doing it before us. So take heart, my friends. See, in the ancient world, the slave was a thing. Even Aristotle spoke about this. Aristotle said the slave is a living tool, just as a tool is an inanimate slave. Paul's words are so superior to Aristotle. We go through this text, and we see that Paul calls the slave a slave of Christ, one who wants to do God's will. He's going to receive a, a war, a reward, whatever for whatever good he does. Then the master is is spoken to that he is responsible to Christ for how he treats the slave, who who belongs to God and not to him. Do you see how radical this was? 
It's, it really was amazing. What, what Paul's doing here, if I could boil it down to this, is he's saying that the bondservant or slave is fully made in the image of God. And friends, this is the scripture's answer for how we treat one another. Image bearers of the divine. The, the bondservant or slave possesses great worth and dignity. He's to be treated properly. With such divine instruction, we can see the hints right now how slavery in the Roman times had a shelf life. It was going to be on the way out, and it certainly was. See, where Christ's love is lived in the power of his spirit, unjust barriers and relationships are inevitably broken down by the gospel, and there's a new greater bond. The image bearers of God and gospel love with one another. Well, one more reason that Paul didn't deal directly with the institution of slavery, but dealt with the root, is, is simply this. This new gospel ethic that all persons are made in God's image who need to be born again, this is what ultimately destroyed slavery. And this instruction continues to transform work relationships today. See, this is our ultimate answer to the critic who asks, why didn't Paul outrightly condemn Roman slavery? And the answer is this. Why aren't you and I treating other people today the way that God wants us to treat them, with love and care as image bearers? You see, the problem is not why somebody else did not do what he should have done quicker But the real issue that scripture brings us to is why are you and I not doing what we know we should do now? Because that's what the gospel of love in Christ teaches us. See, in Roman times, most of the slaves were unjustly treated. But do we not realize now that workers can be mistreated terribly, wounded deeply, threatened harshly, despised cruelly. And we can be part of those injustices. But see, Jesus changes all of this. This is why these verses that we're going to look at today, it speaks to us today. It speaks to us in in 2021 just as loudly as to those in the first century. As far as I know, throughout all time, And today, working people have been often oppressed and abused by economic intimidation that virtually is like slavery. Regardless of the particular economic, social, political system, Paul says this truth should apply to every business owner, to every worker. And as we go to our text, because we live in the day we live in today, it really is going to speak to the duty of employees. Not because a working person is the same as a slave in Roman times, and I'm not making light of that, but because this is the area, this is the arena in which we apply these principles today. As an employee and employer relationships, we apply these. Or we ask this question, because of the gospel, what does an employee 
owe an employer, and because of God's word and truth, what does an employer owe an employee? That is where we're at today. And the first one is this. We display Jesus in our work by having a submissive behavior. By having a submissive behavior. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters. Okay, what does that mean? Well, in a nutshell, that means, we don't like this always, it's the employer's job to determine what must be done and how it should be done. It is not our job to mouth off about it and to whine and refuse to work if we don't like it. Now, granted, it is a gift, right, to have a boss who is reasonable and a team player and who listens. But that's not always a guaranteed right. So we do all honest work without assuming that we know better than he or she. And in and, and, and the frustrating days, the text says... That the extent of our obedience to our employer is clarified by this term, earthly masters. Other translations are more literal, and it says, they're your masters according to the flesh. Well, that's, that's encouraging, that they're not the final word on life and death, right? The employee is not free to, therefore, disobey Jesus or compromise just because a boss tells him to do something dishonest or wrong. Now, I know there's a lot of pressure on you sometimes to do this. I appreciate that, to fudge. Uh, I have uh, dear brothers who said, I could never go further in my company because I wouldn't play those games. And, And people knew that, and he would never be promoted, even though he was a great, wonderful worker and a gracious person. Maybe you've had to face some of these things. Um, it's, it's, it's challenging. I remember having to, to face these with, when I was with a, a team of workers painting, and, and um, it was a hard day, and so everybody's like, we're going to add time because it was tough. Uh, and to do that, everybody had to agree so we wouldn't get caught. And I was like, man, I was a new Christian. I was like... I, I just can't do that, guys. I mean, so I just suffered abuse in the truck on the way back, and it was, it was tough. Fudging numbers, expenses, white lies, those things are out for believers. And, of course, since we belong to Christ and not our em- employer, that means the employee's authority is to be respected, but Jesus also helps us to put our foot down at times. Just for instance, let's say you're in a job interview, young person, and you just say straight up, hey, I just want you to know that I'm pretty free to work, but I can't work on Sunday. Oh, yeah, there's no problem. That's fine. We'll take care of that. And then two weeks into your new job, oh, you're you're scheduled from 11 to 7 on Sunday. Uh, Hey, I was pretty clear about that. Uh, you say, well, you're being a stickler about this, Pastor Dave. Hey, I've, I've known many a people who gave in on that point only to gradually fall away from the gospel because one week led to two, led to three, led to four, led to five, led to permanence. 
It really is. You tell them that, you stick with your guns, and you trust the Lord to work that out. So we display Jesus in our work by having a submissive behavior, but that submission ultimately extends to Jesus and only partially to our boss. Secondly, we display Jesus in our work by having a respectful attitude, by having a respectful attitude. The text says that we're to obey, and notice the next phrase, we're to obey with fear and trembling. The idea of fear and trembling is the idea of respect. I'm not to be whiny and mouthy and complaining. We're to be respectful workers. Now I know, again, this is difficult if the boss is unwise, unfair, moody, or inconsistent. I remember one of my two bosses, I had a company, one was a Christian, and he was laid back, and he was cool, and one was an unbeliever who had a very hot temper, and I don't think he likes me either. (laughs) That was rough. I mean, little things he would yell at you for, and then you couldn't think about what you're doing, and then you'd look like an idiot, right? Isn't that frustrating? But again, this this obedience with fear and trembling is made easier by the phrase at the end of verse 5. And this is a controlling thought of this whole section. um, With a sincere heart as you would Christ. So this is the genius of what Paul is presenting. the, The key to understand the passage and to keep us from discouragement or feeling that I'm doing something that's just useless or worthless is that I get to work for King Jesus. This gives your calling great value and purpose. You're working for the King. You're working through him. And for him, number three, we display Jesus in our work by having integrity. Integrity. This is the phrase in the middle of verse five, that as we work for King Jesus, we do so with a sincere heart. With a sincere heart. Now the idea of sincere is an English word that reflects Latin. It's a compound Latin word, sine, meaning without, and sera, meaning wax. Without wax is what it means. Now, what does that mean? Well, in the, in the uh, Roman times, there was a lot of dishonest pottery makers. Matter of fact, there are still dishonest pottery makers. If you traveled overseas, you probably know that. So they would, they would make these pots and spend a lot of times, but sometimes there would be slight line cracks. And so they would fill these with, with wax. Which, again, I guess that's fine if you don't live in a sunny area or you never put anything hot in the pot. However, it was hard to detect these because they hid them so well. But if you held the pot up to the bright light of the sun, you could see if there was any flaws. So the pottery with integrity, the pottery with no lines in it, was stamped with two Latin words. Sine, Sarah, without wax. It was a piece with integrity. This is the kind of attitude we are to have to display Christ. We're working with a sincere heart. Some of your translations may have a single heart. What does that mean? Well, that means 
we shouldn't try to appear one kind of worker in front of some people and another kind of worker when no one's around. Isn't that irritating and aggravating? We should not be a pretender. Integrity and honesty in Christ through the gospel should be our lives. Uh, The first governor of Australia, his name was John Hope or Lord Hopeton. This is the 1860s to the early 1900s. One of his most cherished possessions, I read, was a 300-year-old ledger book. And he inherited it from one of his ancestors. And in the very front, there, there read something which was neat. It said this, O Lord, keep me and this book honest. And that's a good thing to go through. We're to be people with sincere hearts. Uh, Number four, we display Jesus in our work by having this motive. I've already hinted at this. We display Jesus in our work by having this motive, as you would Christ. As you would Christ. Our primary concern as students, as workers, as bosses, is not just to do well, but to do it from a motivation of the love and glory of God in Christ Jesus. I remember as a teen being discipled by a seminary students at uh, Grand Rapids Baptist Seminary, Cornerstone College in Grand Rapids. Um, matter of fact, uh, Chris's dad was one of those. Uh, and we didn't realize this till he came and spoke. But um, they had us put note cards where we spent a lot of time bedroom, cars, locker at school, and the note card said this, practice the presence of God. Remember God. Remember you're living before God. I heard about a retiree who was interested in a uh, the construction of a new shopping mall. And this retiree, I guess, had time on his hands to do so. So each day he would uh, go watch the, uh, the, the operator of a large piece of equipment, and he was so impressed that how conscientious this large marine op, uh, machine operator was. Finally, the retiree had a, a chance to tell this worker how much he really appreciated his conscientious good work. And to that, the worker was completely astonished and said, you mean you're not the supervisor? Well, isn't it true in life that we forget And this gets us in trouble. We forget that God is always with us. His spirit is always with us. We forget this. But the gospel frees me to do what Colossians 3 says. And this is the cross-reference of this passage. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Jesus. Kids, when you go to school, you're serving the Lord Jesus. Retiree, yes, still serving the Lord Jesus. Changer of diapers, mostly ill, you're serving the Lord Jesus. You're serving the Lord Jesus. Number five, we display Jesus in our work through diligence. We display Jesus in our work through diligence. Look at verse six, not by the way of eye surface as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, 
doing the will of God from the heart. Now, now friends, that's the practical goal of being a Christian. We do the will of God from our hearts. Now, I think it's easy for all of us to visualize what's going on in verse 6. We've all seen it happen. Some, some worker who's working really hard because the manager's around, and then the rest of the time, kind of a bum. This worker who's out to lunch, except when the boss is pressing him. He is a people pleaser. He's working by way of eye service. I read that in a survey of U.S. workers, 85% said they could work harder on the job, and, and more than half of the workers claimed they could double their effectiveness if they wanted to. See, the gospel transforms our perspective so we growingly become the same in private as we are in public. Because why? The text says, because I am a bondservant of Christ. I do the will of God from my heart. And that means that in God's eyes, a great thing is even a little thing done for the honor of Jesus Christ. So it does matter. I, uh, after Burger King and I was in college, I uh, worked for a Great Lakes painting company. And um, I was the, called the O2 man. And that was just the code on the time card that it was sanding and preparation. So sometimes they would drop me off to big mansions that the drywall sanders had been there, but the painters wanted to sand it a little bit more. So all day by myself, I would sand ceilings and walls. That was tough to keep going. And as a new Christian, it was a real test of, do I believe God sees me? I'm supposed to do this, but is it really going to matter? I'm by myself. Well, the gospel informed me. See, the gospel at work simply doesn't do the minimum required, much less working only when others are watching. That's, that's with eye service, right? Uh, uh, the gospel changes us so that we're, we're sincere and we're honest. Uh, grandfather shared advice with his grandchildren. He said there's only two kinds of people in the workforce. Those who do the work and those who take the credit. Be in the first group. There's a lot less competition. A lot less competition. That's true. See, since we live for Christ, we work faithfully even when we're passed over for a promotion. And I know some of you have been passed over for a promotion, and you worked hard, and you don't have an explanation, but you're doing it for the Lord. Some of you are very hard workers, but you don't get A's. And getting an A is really not the issue. Don't just study for A's alone. If you get an A, that's great. But that's not our primary goal. Work diligently for this new phrase because you're doing the will of God from your heart. Doing the will of God from your heart. Number six, we've got to wrap this up. We display Jesus in our work by having joyful enthusiasm. Joyful enthusiasm. This is found in verses seven and eight. Rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Knowing, verse 8, that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Now we want to look at this, this word, 
goodwill for a second. This is the key to understanding this section, goodwill, rendering service with goodwill. The New International Translation translates this wholehearted. New English Bible translates this cheerful. New Living Translation translates this enthusiasm, challenging to translate. I think the idea is you're working with your heart and soul in it. Joyful enthusiasm. That we should not be known to be the grumpy, angry, bad attitude, lazy worker. And this is a problem we have today. People hate work. They have energy to stay up late. They have energy to party on the weekend. But when it comes to having enthusiasm to work, no way. I liked a saying I heard one time. The hardest thing about milking cows, observed a farmer, is they never stayed milked. Got to keep working. You got to do it because those cows won't let up. Uh, Now, by the way. Sometimes very difficult to have this good attitude with with joyful enthusiasm, certainly on Monday sometimes. But look at the encouragement we have in verse 7, that we're working as to who? The Lord, and not to man. So we're, we're called in the gospel to focus on giving service to Christ. It makes it a lot easier when you're dealing with a, uh, a rough boss or you're dealing with yelling kids. Verse 8 also gives us a wonderful motivation for this. It talks about the truth of of rewards. He'll receive back the faithful work from the Lord. And this is something that, that Paul said, whether you're in servitude or whether you're a freeman, it's the same reward from the Lord. There's no distinction because of the image bearers of God. And number seven, we display work. We display Jesus in work by treating your employees with Christ's care and love. We display Jesus in work by treating your employees with Christ's care and love. Now we're talking to masters or, or who we call employers, managers, bosses. Verse 9. Masters do the same to them. And stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality or favoritism or discrimination with him. Now, friends, that's a radical verse in Roman times. Absolutely radical. Now, how do we apply this to our lives? Just because I'm trying to get a job done, just because I'm trying to make a profit, and I've been a business owner, and I've been a boss before, doesn't mean I can check my Christianity at the door. A Christian manager is one that seeks to model the love of Jesus for his workers. They certainly have to correct, but they're not cruel. And they're not harsh. That's the idea of threatening. They're not abusive. They're not oppressors. They don't have a dog-eat-dog attitude like the world with no care for people. And I had bosses that treated me like tools before. And I wasn't going to listen to a word of gospel from that person. I knew they didn't care for me. 
See, Christian bosses are more concerned about the soul of their workers and the welfare of their families than just getting a job done or making money. We have opportunities to pray with them, to care for them, to share the gospel with them, backed, and this is important, you've got to have it backed by, a, by a, 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 a true, sincere example of Christ. See, just as employees work ultimately for Jesus, so supervisors are ultimately working for Christ as well. Everything Paul said to employees motivated by the gospel applies equally to the employers. That's why the phrase says, do the same to them. Everything I said to them applies to you too. You can't be two-faced. You can't be uh, one person here and another person here. No, you're not going to be threatening. You have the same master in heaven as they do. So all have the same ultimate boss. You'll answer to the Lord. Both their master and yours is in heaven. And that there's no partiality with him. And the Lord being an impartial, fair judge, isn't going to judge like the world does. Oh, well, I know they're a little shady, but they have so much money. And he's so gifted with this. Well, who cares? Did you love and serve them because of Christ? That's the real answer. And that's what Paul points us to. Well, let's bring this to a conclusion this morning. I know it's been a lot of material. What does our study do for us? Well, friends, our study this morning reminds us that the gospel of Jesus Christ redeems believing sinners and changes our lives in very practical ways because of God's grace. How I approach my job and my boss and my retirement and my schoolwork and my housework each day. I know many of you are training in, in vocational schools or, or college or grad school. Let me just encourage you, don't pursue a career just because it will make the most money for you. That certainly has to be a consideration, your salary. But what has God called you to do with your hands? What has he called you to do with your minds? Are you using the talents he's granted you? And it's okay if you may make six figures or you may not. Is it what God called you to do? Consider that, first of all. Secondly, I think we understand this because there's been more talk upon this in recent years. But the Lord doesn't call us to be workaholics. We may need to make less money to have more time to disciple our families, to serve the Lord. Many many skip daily time with their family or time in God's word to make just a little more money or to just keep getting ahead. Some regularly skip Sunday worship and fellowship for work when they could avoid it. Some you can't avoid it and it's a necessity. Sometimes you can't avoid it. Let me encourage you, if you can't avoid it, avoid it. Be content to leave work at work and have time for your family, Christian fellowship, rest, and service. You say, I don't know if I can. Well, you may need to start considering a simpler, less demanding job, and you may consider downsizing your life and your expenses and your home. That's okay to do. Here's the reality. Since our priorities are different from the world's priorities, we are content to live 
differently from the world, giving back the first part of our income to the Lord's work and generously helping others is God's plan to help keep our priorities in order. Let me talk to you who work. Do you care for the souls of your co-workers, your boss, your employees, your fellow students? Do you see them with the eyes and grace of Jesus? Do you see that your place there with them at such a time as this? Do they know how precious Christ is to you? When the Lord gives you an opportunity, do they know that? Or are you an undercover secret agent Christian? Those who work at home. It's a big job. And remember, you honor the Lord by taking care of the home, making it a place of spiritual refuge. Children, do the jobs you have. Homework, cleaning your rooms, yard work, feeding the dogs, doing the dishes. You do it to honor Christ. Not just about mom and dad. It's about honoring Christ. And then finally, and I wish I could say more about this, but all of this talk about work does remind us that our salvation is not by our own works, but it is by the works of another, the glorious, perfect work of Jesus Christ. Aren't you glad that Jesus glorified God the Father in his work? Aren't you glad that Jesus didn't cut any corners? Through the work of Jesus alone, each of us can be declared righteous, we can be saved, we can be forgiven, we can be redeemed through the blood of his, what what do we say, his work on the cross. And we can be saved apart from our works. It's a big battle for us, not to rely on our own righteousness, our self-righteousness, and to look to the work of, of Jesus Christ alone. Remember, resting our salvation in our own works, remember as the hymn says, it's like building a house on sinking sand. The firm foundation is the rock of Christ, his blood and his perfect righteousness. And so when we look to Jesus, we look to his finished work. John 17 Jesus says to his father, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Redemption. And we rejoice that Christ continues his work in this sense. Philippians 1. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion to the day of Christ Jesus. Secure in Christ. Well, friends, the gospel goes to work, doesn't it? It goes to work. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this time that we could study your word. And, Lord, I pray as we've talked about how we work in the gospel, I pray, Lord, that you would really burn it in our hearts that we serve you. We live for you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you perfectly worked for us you as the just one for the unjust to bring us to God in Jesus name we pray amen